Why, hello, 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 this is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I am Dante Stack, your long-suffering host. Today on the show, we have kind of an answer, a call and response to question 41 we had a few weeks ago. That question, question 41, was why do we think we're good? Today's question, question 47, is why do I think I'm not so good? So this question kind of goes in conjunction with that question 41. So if you haven't listened to that one, I would recommend starting there and then piggybacking with this episode. Because I think it fills in the gaps of what we were trying to accomplish by asking that question before. And left on its own, this question has many gaps. So hopefully together they make a whole. Anyway, without further ado, here we go. I was born and raised in Oceanside, California. If you're unfamiliar with Oceanside, if I remember correctly, it has roughly like 180,000 people in it. It's the northernmost city in San Diego County, so it touches the southernmost point of Orange County. And I bring this up to explain that clearly I grew up in a very metropolitan urban center, right? So we could get in the car, drive 30 miles south, and we're in... San Diego City that has, you know, 1.4 million people in it or something like that. And from Oceanside down to San Diego, it's just full of towns, full of people. And I could drive 100 miles north through Los Angeles and see nothing but people as well as you get into, you know, the major metropolitan center of Los Angeles, which has, what, 4 million people in it, something like that. So growing up, I felt like... Yes, you had big cities like San Diego, L.A., but then you had suburbs that just sprawled and sprawled and sprawled. It wasn't really until I moved away and lived in Europe and now live in Texas where, for instance, like San Antonio, big city, but then it seems like you get a few miles outside the city and you're like, there's there's a tumbleweed there. This is desert. There's no one here. California offers this weird vibe of city after city after city and no sense of, you know, nature, no sense of not being locked in amongst humanity. And again, I bring that up to create the backdrop because even when I was real little, four years old maybe, I would be very cognizant. It didn't happen every night, but it happened often enough to be aware of it that we would hear coyotes at night. And, you know, it's a wonder even now thinking about it, like, where did these coyotes hang out? And I'm quite sure they were coyotes. My father reinforced that time and time again. There was, you know, a few parks or something that they could hang out in. But it was this weird, chilling idea. And we would have cats that would escape from the house because we had indoor cats for the most part. And if they escaped and decided they wanted to live outside, inevitably they would be eaten by coyotes. That was the death knell for those adventuresome, curious cats. And it provided this weird landscape of... You know, there's a lot of safety in my environment, but yet nature's still somehow right here. Even though we've tried to create humanity on top of it, there's still this risk and danger right outside my doors. And I can hear the howling from that danger almost every night. That idea, that image, is maybe the first image of a few I want to plant here of this sense that I've had pretty much throughout my life that, okay, things are okay now. But under the surface, they're not okay. 
The show Turn on AMC about the American Revolution, I watched season one of it, did not care for the show at all, was really disappointed in it. But the theme song is gripping. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe the theme song is called Hush. And it's kind of uh, soft, soft little song. But then there's this man's voice that sings, kind of flat-toned. There's snakes in the garden, blood on the vine, and I can't sleep anymore. And I love it. I love that song. I wish the show reflected the song more. That in the garden, in this place of nourishment and and goodness, there's something sinister. There's something that can unravel it all. And I hate snakes, so that works very well. And maybe you felt this if you went to college or high school. For me, it was always like, you know, I had good grades. I maintained good grades. I graduated with what of one of those Latin words, magnum, magnimus, dante, maximus, something like that, you know, sum laude, finaliton. I don't know. They don't teach you Latin in college. They just use it, apparently. Anywho, I maintained these grades, but there was always the night before the exam or you're trying to finish a big essay or a big project and you're coming down to the deadline and you're sweating marbles because you're not sure if this is all going to come together. I remember one occasion where I had like six days left or something before I needed to have this paper turned in and I couldn't get my primary sources. I couldn't find sources to base this thing on. The library said I would have to do an interlibrary loan to get these materials, but I didn't have time. It would take, you know, weeks to get one of those interlibrary loans through the system. I needed that information now. And so you'd get this anxiety that, okay, things are okay. Things are okay right now. My life is good if you look at it right now, this moment. But I have this horrible anxiety, this overwhelming stirring that underneath the surface, it's all just a house of cards. And one little thing is about to knock it all down. Because my foundation is in sound for some reason. Finally, the best example I can give, and certainly the most annoying for me, was when I first moved to Slovenia. I was living in an apartment building that was formerly just a home, but this lady had quartered it up so that she could rent out pieces of this house to, uh, I think, three rentees, three tenants. And she was just starting this process. So I came in and she was still finishing remodeling and all this stuff. And there was a lot of cultural barriers that I didn't know about. And I was living in Slovenia, but this lady was Bosnian. So I'm trying to learn Slovenian, and she's speaking to me kind of in Slovenian, but she's throwing in a ton of Bosnian words that I don't know are Bosnian words because I don't know Bosnian either. I'm just learning Slovene. For instance, when I would, you know, finally pick up on the meaning of what she's trying to say, I would then go and try to use the words that she said out in public and people would look at me with blank faces or they would cringe. For instance, the word for tomorrow in Slovenian is jutro, but she would say for tomorrow sutra which I guess is the Bosnian word. And so at some point I figured that out. And so I'm walking around telling people, yeah, I'll see you as sutra. And, you know, that didn't work. But anyway, I'm going in the wrong direction here. Uh, my landlady, she had a key to my apartment and she felt like anytime she needed to go renovate something or get into the apartment, she would. So she wouldn't knock. She would just use her key and come in. And often I would be out of the apartment and I'd come back and there are new dishes By the way, that was part of the deal, too. It was a fully furnished apartment. So there would be dishes, and they would suddenly appear, and new types of dishes. And uh, there were also rafters right outside the building, because these men were painting the outside facade and trying to add air conditioning and all these things. And I remember on one occasion as well, one of these workers taps on my window. I'm on the second floor, and 
I see this guy on the rafter right outside my window. I open up my window and he climbs through the window and starts working on this air conditioning unit. And it gave me this anxiety, this sense of like, I have no private property anymore. I have no escape. And it put this anxiety in me of, okay, things again are okay today, but who knows when my landlady's going to be mad at me for whatever, or I'm going to be kicked out, or my stuff's going to be stolen, or it was this continual idea that there's snakes in the garden. Everything's okay on the surface, but if you look deeper under the surface, the roots are growing sour. Something's wrong, and it's eventually going to catch up with me. All these things, they've pummeled me with a sense of, Dante, you're just barely getting by. You could be doing so much better, but because of who you are, you're just you're just inching along. Today's okay, I can speak for today, but tomorrow, who knows? Maybe I'll change my mind. Uh, it's like the Princess Bride, right? The Dread Pirate Roberts. He keeps thinking he's going to, you know, kill off the main character, but at the end of the day, he says, Good work today. Maybe tomorrow I'll kill you. I, I, I felt that. I've lived with that. And I know we could go down a lot of psychological streams of, well, Dante, you got this because of this certain aspect of your childhood, or, you know, you need to go see a psychologist and take some volume and all these things. And some of those probably have some validity to them. But I think my experience is more universal than most of us like to let on. When we did question 41, why do we think we're good? I talked about this feeling that at the end of the day, we judge ourselves based on others. And we come out ahead of the pack. We think we're okay. We think we're doing fine. We think we're good people. The other side of that coin is we also always, we also have a hard time forgiving ourselves. I know I do. I remember my past. I remember the ways I've messed up. And I over time have been convinced that those errors, those things I've messed up on, are somehow part of me. They've bled into my character. My identity is fused with these events, these things, these thoughts. And so I can't be all good. I am this amalgamation of good things, bad things. And again, if I compare myself to other people, yeah, I'll come out okay. But I know I'm just barely good enough. Barely squeaking by. The Calvinistic church I was raised in had the phrase, we're pond scum. And it was this ever continuing theme, I guess coming from John Calvin himself that all of us are pond scum compared to God and you can't do anything good ever. You're the worst continually. And okay, if we looked at, you know, that passage we looked at with question 41 when Jesus says, "Who is good but the Lord alone?" I can see where you come away with that. However, there's so many passages in the New Testament, so many times specifically Paul talks about how we're no longer to be condemned. We're no longer pond scum. Take, for instance, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For there is now no condemnation. Skipping down to verse 15 of that same chapter. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul here uses that word fear, we could probably supplant it with the word anxiety. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into anxiety, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. For there is now no condemnation. You're not at fault anymore. To be clear, (laughs) Paul and the various other writers of the New Testament make it pretty explicit that we are all sinful and we're all deserving of judgment, of going on trial for our sins, for our mistakes, for our bad judgments, for the things we've done that have hurt others. However, once you're saying, Jesus is my homeboy, Jesus is the guy that steps in line 
for me, when he becomes my atoning sacrifice, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. I'll try to make this even more clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Jesus, if anyone has faith in Jesus, he is now a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A couple verses later. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God. We are the best of God the righteous, the rightness of God when we accept Jesus. So why do I feel the sense of I'm always just barely getting by? I'm just barely thinking through the day's wrath and and squeaking by it. I've recently been listening to this lecture series on the ancient world, and the professor seems to be most strongly influenced or seems to suggest that the geography, the landscape of where ancient peoples lived was the single most important attribute to their entire culture, their entire way of life. And he said you could even see this in their reflections of the afterlife. He said, for instance, the Egyptians, they had the Nile and the Nile flooded once a year. And because of those floodwaters, they could consistently count along the banks of the Nile to have very good crops. And this was a very, like, consistent cycle year to year. He said, because of this, you see an afterlife system that is very orderly, where justice and order are the most important attributes in the Egyptian afterlife. As he described it, it turns out to be very similar to what we hear a lot in modern religions of kind of a works-based salvation. Your deeds are put on a scale. If that scale balances out, then you get entrance into, you know, this good afterlife place. Whereas other places in Mesopotamia, uh, I can't recall if he was talking about the Sumerians or the Assyrians. Anyway, ancient Mesopotamian peoples who lived between the Tigris and Euphrates long, long ago, where they didn't have natural resources like gold and steel and mountains even, where they mostly just had mud and water. Those were the two things that were in constant plenty. The professor made the point that life was excessively, extremely hard. And that's why you have, for instance, like the Assyrians, who are such a brutal, warmongering people, who are, you know, the very definition of terrorists, because they instill terror almost as a normal bureaucratic course of action. And he said, their image of afterlife was just as bad as life was often for them. They envisioned an afterlife that was completely pitch black under the ground where there was no food and everyone perpetually chewed on dust. Forever. And this was for everyone. Didn't matter if you were good or bad, everyone went to the underground afterlife where you chewed on dust in perpetuity. And I bring this up because I think it's an interesting segue, and there's surely some truth to it that our experience of life is reflected in what we believe the afterlife will be, or just what we believe of the supernatural, of religion. Neil Gaiman, in our household, my wife and I, holds a very valuable place. He writes a lot of kind of weird fiction, a lot of fun, supernaturally pagan, one might say, stories. Most notably... American Gods, which is about the old gods trying to get by in America in modern times, and another book called A Nazi Boys, which is more of a comedy. But in both stories, in both novels, particularly the one about a Nazi, who, if I'm remembering correctly, was like a spider in certain African folklore, but a, a god spider. But a Nazi and, and many other gods got by by their wits. And there's all these stories that are usually fun and humorous about how these 
gods are overmatched, outmatched by stronger gods or by a situation that is just bigger, better, stronger than them, but they use their street smarts to, to somehow win. The best example of this, I think, comes from the book Watership Down. Uh, if you haven't read it, go pick it up. It's one of my all-time favorites. And it follows the story of a bunch of these rabbits who are migrating, essentially, from one place to another. And they go in all these adventures. And one of the prime takeaways you get from this is, Dang, it's hard to be a rabbit. Bunnies don't have it easy, man. They're all fluffy and stuff. And there's like a thousand million things that are trying to kill them constantly. And one of the beautiful aspects of the book is these rabbits who you fall in love with and who are very anthropomorphic, obviously. You know, at night they sit around and they tell stories of kind of their rabbit god, who they call El Herrera. And he is exactly the embodiment of a trickster god. And it's all these encouraging stories about how this rabbit, you know, overcomes the fox, overcomes the lion, overcomes the man by the skin of his teeth, by his wits, by his conniving. And I imagine this is, you know, peoples throughout history, especially when we're talking Anansi and these other trickster gods, these are people's way of, of talking about anxiety, talking about this feeling that there's snakes in the garden, but if I'm on my toes 24-7, if I can just use my brain, I'll figure out a way to keep this house of cards from falling down. I'm not good enough, I'm actually bad, I actually deserve something more, but maybe if I think through this long enough, if I'm cunning enough, I'll get out of it. I'll get out of jail somehow. The Bible says, Romans 8.1 says, Now, there's no condemnation. You don't have to be thinking that way. You don't have to have anxieties. You don't have to become El Herrera. You don't have to become Anansi and try to figure out a way into heaven. You're good. You're okay. Chill. I'm not judging you. Big Brother isn't watching and marking down your every move for eternity. So why can't I get over this? Why can't I simply breathe in Romans 8.1. Why can't I accept that there is now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus? For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the laws of sin and death, from my trial. For Jesus has set me free to have to go through a painful, long, torturous trial about all the stuff of my life. Why do I still have anxiety? Why do I still feel like I'm just barely getting by? One of the earliest dreams I can remember having is about going to heaven, being in heaven and it being really good. And Jesus like leading a pack and saying, hey, Dante, it's Monday. On Mondays, we go to the pool together. And I'm excited to go to the pool, except I've broken a vase or I've broken, you know, something shiny and glassy up in heaven. And because I've broken that, I'm still in heaven, but I don't get to go to the pool with everyone else. And Jesus shakes his head at me and, you know, says, you know, sorry, Dante, maybe next week if you're good. You can go to the pool. It's so funny how my mind from day one is still figuring out ways to torture myself, to blame myself, to condemn myself. And although I haven't continued to have that dream later in my life, I've still found myself falling into this type of mentality that when I get to heaven, and I say heaven, but that's kind of a misnomer, and we think of the wrong thing, I think, when we say heaven, but that's a conversation for another day, another question. When I enjoy eternity in God's kingdom, I still find myself thinking that I won't be able to enjoy it to the fullest. There'll be people that are enjoying it more fully because I won't be at the front of the line. I won't deserve to be at the front of the line. I've heard it explained once that <laughs> based on your good works, you'll have a different capacity to enjoy heaven. So the idea being like, when we get to heaven, we're all going to be a part of a band. And some of us will have really cool instruments like 
badass drums or a double bassoon. And then some of us will just be like, uh, I got the cymbal. Yay! Cymbal, 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 cymbal. Ding, 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 ding. And we'll all be making music together. But clearly some of us have cooler instruments than the others. Ah! Ah! Why? Why? Why are we still looking for ways to put ourselves in a hierarchy and then blame ourselves? Why can't I forgive myself? Why can't I move on and accept that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? I don't know. Maybe I can't accept it because I'm a bad guy and I'm just getting by by the skin of my teeth. Maybe I'm not accepting it because I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not accepting it because I'm actually a bad guy and I'm cheating God a little bit. He has to accept me into heaven. You see, he set up the system where if you believe in Jesus, you get to go to heaven despite whatever you do. So even though based on my own merit, I don't deserve it, I've rigged the game. You see, I've figured out the rules and I've trusted in Jesus. You see, our brains play those games constantly. I want to end the show today just meditating on Romans 8.1. And there's lots of other passages we could go to, but I want to just keep it simple, stupid. I'm just going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 in various passages, just to meditate on it and let it seep over me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no guilty verdict, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in him as a personal Lord and Savior. For the law of the Spirit of life, which is in Christ Jesus, the law of our new being, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. There is now no judgment for those who live in union with Jesus. There is now no judgment for those who live in union with Jesus. There is now no judgment. There is no judgment. There's no judgment. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey. Thank you.
guys, 365 is produced by me, Dante Stack. Be sure to check out our show notes page where I always link to the various movies and pieces of media that I talk about, as well as the Bible verses that I quote. Check out the website. It's pretty cool. I'm always altering it, adding to it. That's DanteStack.com. D-A-N-T-E-S-T-A-C-K dot com.